Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food. From employee meal plans to on-site staffing to concierge ordering support. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. Hey, it's Manoush here. Okay, we all know we are on our screens all the time. One study even found that we've increased our time online by 500% since the pandemic started. And all this screen time, it's been a boon for the big four tech companies, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. Their stock prices have soared over the summer. But also this summer, their CEOs were grilled by lawmakers who have had some of the same questions that we've had. Like, are these companies using their power for good or just their bottom line? And what responsibility to society and humanity do they have? Well, we got some answers from amazing speakers in an episode we did back in March. You might have missed this one. It was one of my first episodes, and it came out just as many of us were going into lockdown. So please take a listen or listen again. Because as a veteran tech reporter, finding ways to live better with our technology is a mission near and dear to my heart. And I think the ideas on this episode are even more urgent now. Thanks so much for being here. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. Our job now is to dream big. Delivered at TED conferences. To bring about the future we want to see. Around the world. To understand who we are. From those talks, we bring you speakers and ideas that will surprise you. You just don't know what you're going to find. Challenge you. We truly have to ask ourselves, like, why is it noteworthy? And even change you. I literally feel like I'm a different person. Yes. (laughs) Do you feel that way? Ideas worth spreading. From TED and NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and I think I'm a pretty good citizen. I am law-abiding, I stop at red lights, I pay my taxes, I try to be nice to my neighbors. You probably do too. But what rules do we follow when we go online? Well, none. There are no rules. But maybe there should be. Because what happens on the internet can have real-life repercussions. So this particular example happened towards the end of April 2019. That's Claire Wardle. She studies how information spreads online and how tech platforms filter facts from misinformation. She's been researching a recent case related to the polio vaccine in Pakistan. A series of videos emerged in Pakistan, which basically questioned the safety of the polio vaccine. One of the videos claimed that kids were dying after getting the vaccine. Another claimed that the vaccine was making them sick. I mean, if you watch the video, it is absolutely clear that it's a fabricated video. It shows a man talking to the camera, and then the camera pans, and you see a row of kids laying down, one by one, on a hospital bed supposedly after getting the polio vaccine. You see this guy basically saying to these kids on a bed, shh, lie down. So clearly, like, coaching them to act a specific way. Exactly. But in an era of social media where we just look at the headlines and we don't watch the clip, just seeing the imagery of the children lying on the bed with a caption that was like, kids affected by polio vaccine, that was enough. So the videos started spreading. And, you know, these videos were kind of children fainting in a hospital. They were being shared on Twitter and Facebook and WhatsApp. And then, unfortunately, we saw mainstream media repeat what had happened. And even though some of them said, well, there are reports that we're looking into, it just gave more flames, more oxygen to these rumours. And in three days, we had a terrible situation where thousands of family members were taking their kids to hospitals. So the hospitals were overwhelmed. There was a protest and a health clinic was set fire. Three people lost their lives. And as a result, Pakistan had to stop and suspend its polio eradication programme. And this all happened in a space of three days. Just three days from when the videos first got posted to complete panic. 
But it's not like that panic came out of the blue. The images played into very real fears that were already out there. Yeah. So some of the most effective disinformation is that which has a kernel of truth. We have to acknowledge that there were concerns in Pakistan and has been for a long time around vaccination. So you also had this sense of, well, maybe there is something to it. And actually, the CIA went into Pakistan before 2011, pretending to be vaccination officers, trying to get DNA from bin Laden's family. Oh, yeah, that's right. So that had created a context where there was there was concern about uh, the West coming in and vaccinating children. So when you take a case study like this, there are so many elements, but it was kind of like a tinderbox and this somebody threw the match in. And the fire took off and then oxygen was given by news organizations and by others saying there's something to this. Whether it's vaccinations in Pakistan or here in the U.S., rumors that the coronavirus is a hoax or worries about tampering in elections. Misinformation is everywhere. We're just living in a polluted information environment. The problem is is that we, as the general public, we're kind of being weaponized because if we didn't share this stuff... We'd be we'd be okay, And there might be people who are like, well, who cares? People can talk all they want, sticks and stones. But that's not really true, is it? Yeah. So I think one thing that's missing in this conversation is a discussion about harm. Back in the day, in our little villages, we were gossiping about each other. That's how humans interact. But back in our villages, it would hit the boundary of the village and it would stop. Maybe somebody would get on a horse and gallop to the other village. But now all of that is just on a, a level that we never could foresee, which is it happens at a speed of light. Right. And if people actually had the time to do the research and double check, maybe they wouldn't fall for all this false information. But it feels like things spark so much faster than they ever used to. And we just feel overloaded. So because we're overloaded, as you said, we rely increasingly on heuristics, which are mental shortcuts, which help us make sense of credibility. So all these shortcuts, whether it's names or logos, takes us as humans a long way towards believing something, even though if we slow down, we did all the checks... 90% 90% of the rubbish online, we could we could fact check. Anybody on the street could do in, you know, two minutes. The problem is we are not checking. We could have this conversation almost any week of this year and misinformation would be impacting people's health, what they're eating, what they think about climate. On some level, you want to say, oh, it's frivolous. Is it, you know, misinformation, whatever, it's always been around. But... When you actually study this and you look at this every single day, it is, the magnitude is significant. I mean, misinformation is certainly one of the big problems that we're all dealing with, but it's far from the only one. This is Zainab Tufekci. She's a sociologist who studies the ways technology impacts society, which today is like every possible way. With the technology now, we have the infrastructure that can monetize like little snippets of our attention to try to grab it. Like, you know, your phone is almost like this Darwinian competition where all the apps are like, me, 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 look at me, look at me. And they're all doing whatever they can to say, you know, turn on my notification. And if you turn them on, they're like, look at me, look at me, click on me, click on me. Because they make money by grabbing your attention and selling it to people or grabbing your attention and then recording your information. Search online, like a photo, share a link. The stuff we do all day, every day tells tech companies about our habits, our interests, our location, age, gender. And if you have that much information on people, uh, that information is going to be misused. Governments are going to go after it. It's going to be stolen and hacked. It's going to be used to blackmail people. It's going to be rob people of their privacy. I mean, the idea that you can collect that much information on billions of people and not have it end up highly consequential in a negative way, that's just not true. The, the existence of that information, it's like radioactive waste. You have to do something with it. You have to not have it, ideally. But data collection is how the web as we know it functions. It runs all our platforms and apps, and it's how tech companies make money. All that data collection, though, has also set up society for a whole host of issues. 
The gig economy is a great example. The gig economy, where companies use big data to decide wages and schedules. Make Zainab work from 10 to 3, 5 to 7. Which is convenient for some. You know, clean up 11 to 12 o'clock. But for others, it's... A brutal schedule. Yeah, kind of is. It's terrible. And then there are the algorithms, which decide, like, who gets insurance. Uh, where you're going to get hired. Who gets a mortgage. So they're making decisions. Important decisions, but we don't know how they work. Right. Algorithms that are being used for gatekeeping, that's a huge problem. And, of course, there's mass surveillance. Not just online, increasingly, with sensors in the offline world. There are cameras everywhere. They're being linked to facial recognition systems. And to some degree, we know all this. But we also know that we depend on these platforms, and we don't feel like we have much of a choice but to use them. I mean, I feel like we could go on and on with the issues, but the way that you have summed it up is to say that combined, all together, we're creating a low-trust society. What does that mean? So we haven't built institutions of trust and verification into the digital infrastructure. Mm. What you have is basically, like, Word of mouth and kind of your gut feeling and mostly frustration. So imagine a world in which instead of having food safety managed by government and companies and mandated, right, we just throw you into a supermarket and say, hope you have a good chemistry lab in your basement. (laughs) Hope you can tell if there's E. coli in your salad or if there's salmonella in your eggs. We don't do that. But... That's exactly how we are doing things online. We throw people into the online world and we're like, buyer beware, hope you can figure out what's fake and what's real and what's misinformation and what's phishing and what's stealing your information and good luck. So what can we do? Uh, This needs to change. In 2017, Zainab Tufekci gave a TED Talk. Now I can't offer a simple recipe because we need to restructure the whole way our digital technology operates. I was in the audience that day, and actually, I gave a talk at that same TED conference on how technology is changing the human experience. It's what I've been reporting on for the last decade. And at the time, there were some people who thought that Zainab and I were being alarmist. But now, lots of people are questioning the power of technology to influence everything from how we spend our time to what we believe. This is really a significant transition in human history. It's not the first one. It's probably not the last one, but it's just as significant as almost anything I can think of. Our online lives have become our real lives. There's less and less distinction. But who decides what's right or wrong in this vast virtual space? Can the same laws that govern nations apply to the borderless World Wide Web? Or is it just up to you to navigate this new era in human history? So today on the show, writing the rules for life online, figuring out how we can rebuild trust in the Internet. Many thanks to misinformation expert Claire Wardle and sociologist Zainab Tufekci. You can find both of their talks at TED.com. You're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor AT&T Business. With a voice as calm and soothing as Rain Wilson's, it was inevitable he either worked for NPR or invented a talking pillow. He went with the pillow. Sleep with Rain, powered by AT&T Business, featuring his voice, designed to help people sleep. Kind of brilliant. Even smarter? Launching a new business with AT&T Business's security, reliability, and expertise. Make your next-level ideas a reality with the only next-level network. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. On the show today, ideas about writing the real-life rules for living online, especially when it comes to protecting our privacy. Hello? Ed? 
I can hear you. Hey, Ed, it's Manoush in New York. Can you hear me? I can. I can hear you well. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be talking to you again. I interviewed you a couple years ago now. I'm just kind of curious before we start. Like, what is your life like right now? I, I read in one interview that you take care to avoid being recognized in public, but nowadays you said everyone's too busy staring at their phones to give you a second <laughs> yeah. glance. Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those uh, unexpected ironies, and in, in this case, a welcome one. As you say, uh, no one's looking for me, other than the CIA, in day-to-day life. People don't recognize me because they're not paying attention. This is Edward Snowden, the former NSA contractor who leaked confidential information about government surveillance programs in 2013. He spoke to us over video chat from his home in Moscow, where he was given asylum after he spoke out about those programs. I came to understand that this was not only a violation of the laws as written in the United States, which, by the way, federal courts have since agreed with, um, but more fundamentally, uh, the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. This was a a fundamental violation of the right to privacy, uh, not just for every American, but everyone around the world. But since those leaks... Edward hasn't just spoken out about government overreach, but also about what's being called surveillance capitalism. Basically, the access that the tech giants like Facebook and Google have to your personal information. And the companies go, look, it's fine for us. The government is restrained by the Fourth Amendment. But the Fourth Amendment only restricts the government, right? The state government, the federal government. Uh, It doesn't bind private companies. Why would it be okay for private companies uh, to do something so intrusive, so violative of our basic rights? Now, this is the central point. Are people aware of the extent of the intrusion? Are people aware uh, of what is happening? And is it necessary? Is it something they consented to? And I think for the vast majority of people, um, the answer is, is no. So, okay, walk me through what it looks like, though, for the average person, like regular people who use these platforms all day long and don't always think about or even know about the repercussions of having their data and information collected. That's that's precisely uh, identifying the correct problem. When Facebook is uh, sort of grinding down your privacy, you don't see it. Uh, And although you will feel it, Uh, You won't feel it for years. And and this is what's uh, really dangerous about the new sort of model of surveillance capitalism. Mm. When you sign up for an account, suddenly you get all the cat videos, you get all of the connection, you get all of this this wonderful uh, experience. But then, you know, six months on, six years on, you have not seen what happened as these companies have quietly created perfect records of everything you've done, everywhere you've gone, everything you've clicked, everything you've liked, uh, how long you've stayed on a page, you know, when you had to scroll up to reread a section. Uh, All of that is captured. And they use this to model ways to influence your behavior, to actually shape and manipulate the decisions you make as a human being. And then they sell this capability, or rather at least rent this capability. Facebook says uh, they don't sell data. Um, which is absurd because what they're doing is they're collecting all of the data and then they're selling the use uh, of the influence they can derive from this data to the highest bidder, right? Um, What they're selling is access to your eyeballs. What they're selling is access to your mind. And then they go, well, okay, yes, all of this data is being collected, but it's just data, right? It's fairly benign. Um, But the reality is all of this uh, manipulation and computation of this data is not for its own sake. It's not academic research. The only reason they collect this data, the only reason they care about this at all, is because it's data about people. It's you being exploited, and you don't see it happening. If you saw that, and you could just tap a little icon that says, um, yeah, no thanks. I would rather that not happen. Everyone in the country would press that button. Would they, though? Because I think they're so used to getting what they get when they wake up and they turn on their phone immediately because it's right next to them. And the phone tells them exactly where they need to be that day. It gets them in touch with their mom, their dad, all the 
people in their family. They know they they don't even have to get out of bed to do a business call. It tells them what the weather is going to be. I mean, we have come to depend on all those updates going on all night long while we sleep because they make our waking hours possible. We are living in a connected world where these companies, I think, would say, why do you think it's free that you get all that information? And how the heck do you expect it to be so personalized if we don't know you? Well, no, this is this is a great point. And I, I think it's half correct. Uh, there is a presumption uh, underlying it there that these capabilities would not be possible without spying on everyone all the time. Um, and that's simply false. Mm. That is entirely a profit-making uh, activity on the point of the companies. And in many cases, uh, this is beyond what's necessary for their uh, essential business purposes. Uh, for example, AT&T has been storing uh, all of our movements in the United States, uh, what cell site, they call it CSLI, cell site location information, for every handset, every customer, everybody who's not even their customer but happens to be connected to one of their towers as they go through traffic, going back to 2009, they're storing this. They have the last 10 years of your movements and everyone you know, more or less. And here's the thing, they sell that as a service to law enforcement agencies without a warrant. They don't have to go to court and say, you know, we need a warrant for this particular person at this particular time. Uh, they can do it on much lower authorities like subpoenas and things like that. So what's more, that's just this location information. What about your actual calling records? I will tell you from having worked uh, in intelligence, uh, calling records are a proxy for what's called a person's social graph. Uh, this is everyone you know, this is everyone you care about, this is everyone you've just interacted with. And from the frequency of calls, uh, you can tell who matters the most to this person or who they talk to the most frequently. When you combine this with location information, you can go, well, who's sleeping with this person? Who goes to the same home that they go to, right? Uh, who travels with them? Uh, where, do their, where are their children? And, you know, all of, all of these things based on uh, what we call co-traveler tracking, right? When you see phones moving in tandem from cell site to cell site uh, throughout the day, um, you can infer all of these things. Well, that is a terrifying thing, but that's the state of play today. But I think most people listening are like, yeah, that sounds bad, but you know what? I got to be on Google Drive because that's how my company works. And Facebook is the only way I can find out what time my soccer team is meeting for practice. And I've signed up for these things and like, I heard, I read somewhere that privacy was dead anyway, and this is the digital era. And I guess, like, what I've, I've struggled to explain to people is, like, just because you don't say you need privacy doesn't mean that somebody else doesn't need it if they are of an ethnic minority or religious minority or sexual orientation or whatever else. But also, like, isn't it human to have thoughts that other people don't know about to have conversations with yourself and they can be as rude or mean or unkind or even violent. But the point is, if you don't act on them, that's okay. It's your mind. It's your brain. That's the pure definition of privacy to me. And I really struggle to explain why I, what that means to people. They're like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> Okay, well, there were about 12 questions in there. So Sorry I'm try about to that. Take yeah. A couple. Uh, <laughs> all of this goes to that central point uh, about the illusion of consent. Um, when people go, look, I have to be connected to, you know, Google Drive, or I've got a Gmail account, or I need to be registered on LinkedIn to get a job, or I need to be on this to file my taxes, or I have to be on Facebook because there's a meeting or an event or whatever. This is precisely illustrating the illusion of consent. You cannot consent uh, to something that is not a choice. And many of these technical services are intentionally designed uh, to be monopolies, to exploit what's called the network effect, particularly in secure messengers, uh, things like uh, WhatsApp or Facebook itself, which is not secure at all, um, so that the only way you can talk to someone or the only way you can read this is that you must use this service. And if you must use this or that, if you are reliant on this or that, and there are no effective uh, or equivalent alternatives, then it was never a choice at all. Right. And it's that lack of choice that essentially forces us to give up our privacy. Yeah. You know, so many people um, 
the uh, Eric Schmidt, former head of Google, uh, argued that you know privacy is dead, uh, that culture's changed, that we don't care about this anymore, that it's not right. And it's exactly as you said, you know, what is privacy really about? Uh, what privacy is about is actually power. The political argument that we get here uh, all the time is if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. And for us to hear that today, to begin with, should just, you know, raise the hairs on the back of our neck a little bit and go, why do we have any rights? What are rights for? If we're in a democracy, right, a lot of people think, well, the democracy is constituted to represent the will of the majority. And the majority doesn't really need uh, things like privacy protections because the majority decides the things that can and cannot be said. The majority decides literally what is popular, what is unpopular, what's scandalous and what's not, right? Um, so the majority is never really at risk uh, in the same way uh, from violations of privacy. Privacy is not about something to hide. Privacy is about something to protect. Uh, and what you are protecting are the differences within society, because that's where we get progress from. We get it from the strange idea, the uh, even the heretical idea. Something different that someone says that the rest of us are like, ooh, not sure I'm with that, but we protect that space for change. What we're doing is we're protecting the minority against the majority, and that is what every right accomplishes. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, you know, private property, all of these things are about having something for you. The due process rights, right? The right to a trial. Why? Where does that derive from? What does it mean? What is it establishing? It is recognizing that you have a right to yourself, which society, the government, the other, the neighbor, whoever must overcome before they can march you off to prison, right? Um, and this is what the rights are about. They're establishing a baseline fundamental protection. They're intentionally making the life of government and power more difficult to ensure a level of agency for the individual, right? Mm. Privacy is the fountainhead from which all other rights derive because it is what says you belong to you. So let's say someone listening to this is like, okay, I'm with you. I, I, I'm, I'm with you on this privacy thing. What's the answer? That we need the government, which you say, based on your track record, is untrustworthy, but they're the only answer to creating rules, regulations, laws around these tech companies so that we can begin to trust them again because we've lost trust in them as well. Or is this just there's there's <laughs> we're talking about like two entities that will never actually uh, protect <laughs> the self because it's not in their interest. It's not their job. Yeah, no. This is this is this is a great question. This is the this is the the big one in a in a real way. Um, there is always going to be a Mark Zuckerberg, a Jeff Bezos, um, a Peter Thiel who wants to advantage themselves at the cost of society. There was always going to be an elected leader uh, who goes, you know, I know this is against the law. I know this is likely controversial. And I know if the public knew I was doing this, I would be in a scandal. But maybe we can just hide it. And maybe if nobody hears about it, I can do what I want. And this is the thing that's, uh, again, always going to be causing problems. We are firefighters. I mean the American people, I mean humanity globally. Um, we never pick the problems of our day. We inherit them from the previous generation, and we always have to be working to make them better. And I think that is, in a large way, you ask, you know, whose responsibility is this? Is it governments? Is it companies? Is it the individual? And the answer, sadly, is all of the above. The United States is uh, probably the only advanced democracy in the world that does not have a basic privacy law. Um, we talked before about the, the Fourth Amendment, right? That, that's not a basic privacy law. That's a specific prohibition against the government to engage in particular kinds of searches. But it does nothing to protect you um, from uh, sort of the <laughs> predatory activities of um, companies. So, yes, we do need uh, basic regulations, which I, I don't think is a particularly big ask. And it is only by believing that the government 
can be better. It is only believing that our industry, that these companies can be better, that they will ever get better, uh, because they will only ever meet uh, our bare minimum expectations of them. Uh, we have to raise our expectations uh, for, for the centers of power in society if we want to have a fairer society. That's Edward Snowden. He wrote a book about his experiences called Permanent Record, and you can find his appearance on the TED stage at TED.com. Okay, at this point, you might be feeling a little overwhelmed. Technology is growing fast, misinformation is spreading quicker, and our digital economy is controlled by tech giants. If you want to shop, you go to Amazon. Social media? Head to Facebook or Instagram, which Facebook owns. Searching the web? You Google it. What's missing in all of this? A choice in the services we use, something one woman is working very hard to change. My name is Margrethe Vestager. I am the European Commissioner for Competition. And Makreta says it's tough to ensure the internet is safe and fair if the playing field is skewed. I work with competition law enforcement, making sure that companies don't do cartels. By cartels, she means businesses coming together to form monopolies. You cannot buy yourself a nice cartel. You cannot come together as businesses in secrecy, uh, squeezing out your competitors. You probably don't know many EU commissioners. But you might know Margrethe as the woman who's been fining tech companies for not following European law. Breaking news this morning. It is official. Today, the commission has decided to fine Google. In 2018, Margrethe slapped Google with a record fine of $5 billion. $5 billion over its Android operating system. For breaching EU antitrust rules. It's the largest antitrust penalty ever leveled at a single company. The tech giant has 90 days to make changes or face penalty payments. She's launched investigations into Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook. Margarita Vestager, the EU's competition commissioner and resident dragon slayer. She hates the United States perhaps worse than any person I've ever met. Wow. She, what she does to our country, she's suing all our companies. The purpose you know. is to ensure competition and innovation for the benefit of European consumers. And that, she says, is the key to building an Internet we can trust. Part of building trust is that you know there is a consequence if someone betrays your trust and do something illegal, something that they shouldn't do. Because if it's without consequence to betray people's trust, well, then trust disappears. And I think that is what is eroding societies and democracies. We need trust to make our society work. In just a moment, Margrethe Vestager explains how she's working to build that trust. On the show today, writing new rules for our online lives. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares Betterment's philosophy on investing. No matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Get started at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. And on the show today, ideas about building trust in the Internet. We just heard from EU Competition Commissioner Margrethe Vestager, who says the best way to build that trust is to make competition fair. And to do that, Margrethe is looking to the past, to the very first time that Europe built a fair marketplace across its borders. 
Let's go back to 1957. Europe was destroyed. Here's Margrethe on the TED stage. A world war had emerged from Europe. The human suffering was unbelievable and unprecedented. The sound of ruin is silence. The smell of ruin is sick with the scent of dead and dust. In order to avoid Europe being sort of the cradle of a third world war, we have to do something radical. We have to work together in a different way. Will there be peace or war? Representatives from six European countries had come to Rome to sign the treaty that were to create the European Union. And one of the many building blocks was a common European market. Part of the inspiration came from the U.S., uh, because in the U.S., that was already sort of part of the societal contract for decades by the Sherman Act. So they took the inspiration from antitrust to say, well, you have to be innovative. You have to offer affordable prices, good service, high quality, come up with the latest. So we put a frame around this market to control bad behavior. And within that framework, we say, now go compete. Now let the market powers work so that the customers and consumers, they get the best of what a market can offer. So how unlikely was it that people would actually come together to agree on this standard set of rules? Well, I think back then it was almost a miracle because we have a history of fighting our neighbors. Coming together and agreeing not only on values, but also how you put values into real life. That was a man-made miracle. And he literally meant because it was men who was writing these rules. Um, but the thing is that it worked. Europe has been at peace ever since. But the key difference now is that we have a global economy that's driven by big tech companies, right? They have the highest valuations of any corporations. They operate around the world and on the internet. And governments haven't really placed boundaries on them. So where are we now when we look back at 1957 in terms of applying those ideas? Well, we still have some way to go, to say it mildly. But the fundamentals are the same. The reason why it was necessary to frame the market in this respect was human nature. And human nature doesn't change with digital technology because it's about greed and fear and power. Of course, we are profoundly challenged to fully grasp a fully digital economy because the dynamics are different from how it was in the old days uh, 10 years ago. Also because... We're in the midst sort of, of breaking the fiction of the web as a place of freedom. The web is a very commercial place. It's a place where you also find some of the things that we have long, long time agreed on in the real world that we will not accept. Like, you know, handing out bomb recipes, child abuse, incitement to terrorism. So... There are temptations, uh, there are conflicts, there are evil things that we'll have to deal with. And I think we are better off and much wiser if we look at the digital part of our society, of our market, with the same eyes as we would look at the rest of the world. Because otherwise, I don't think that we can maintain democracy. So... With that in mind, as commissioner, what sort of scenarios prompt you to do an investigation? Like, in my head, I'm thinking maybe small businesses who are selling their stuff on Amazon, but struggling to compete with Amazon itself. Exactly. And we do have an Amazon investigation in issues exactly as the one you just described. Because on the one hand side, it is great that small vendors can find a marketplace where they can be helped with shipping and payments and, you know, the things that makes it easy to do e-commerce. On the other hand side, it's not that good if the one who holds the marketplace also takes all the data that comes from your sale and they have this information from all the vendors, then they themselves becomes an incredible competitor to you. 
because imagine sort of an old school marketplace where you have people coming in with their different products. You would never accept if the municipality who owned the marketplace had a giant shop where they would sell things that were similar to the products that the vendors who had paid for their stalls in the marketplace, that they would sell. And there's a lot of parallels in sort of the real world where we have discussed in depth how we would like things to be and agreed upon it and enforced it over decades. And I think only because we've had this illusion of the internet and the digital world being special and free and innovative, we have kind of let go of some of the things that were fundamental to us. So clearly small businesses benefit from your work. But what about the big guys? Some of them are kind of trying to beat you to the punch. Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, for example, has said he wants to be regulated. Please put framework around our company so we know when we're complying and not complying, he's basically said. Do you think that's just lip service? Of course, I'm not in Mark Zuckerberg's head, but uh, I think he's right that regulation is needed. But if you want regulation, you would also start with yourself. Mm. You would consider your business to say, well, I know it takes time for a regulator to get the legislation right. So I will start with myself to make sure that my fundamental values and the values reflected in the society where I do my business, that they are also reflected in the way I do business. Do you think that people are starting to understand that what happens online in the digital space really does affect what happens in the real world, that the two aren't that separate? I think so. I think slowly but surely. For me, the important thing is that we live in a world with consequences. That be a digital world or a physical world or when the two things, they kind of melt together as they do now. Just as there's no such thing as a free lunch, I'd say there's no such thing as a paradise without a snake. That's EU Commissioner Margrethe Vestager. You can find her full talk at TED.com. So, as difficult as it is to create rules for the web and tame it, we do need it. And actually, we love it. I mean, the internet connects us, it educates us, entertains us, saves us time. And even if most of us don't spend our waking hours worried about what happens to our data or how companies compete in the global market, a lot of us are thinking about our personal digital habits, starting with our screen time. As a psychologist, what do you tell people who say, Oh, man, I just, I can't, I, I, you know, I love being on Instagram. I want to see what everybody's doing. And oh my gosh, the news, there's just so much going on. I, I, I can't stop looking at the alerts. Wh- what do you tell people? I mean, I think the first question to ask people is how many hours of the day or minutes of the day do you spend where you can reach your phone without moving your feet? <laughs> That's a good question. Yes. Yeah. And when you ask people this, about 75 to 80% of adults say 24 hours a day. Oh, That's a lot. This is Adam Alter. He's a professor of marketing and psychology at NYU's Stern School of Business. And I'm the author of Irresistible. And Irresistible is about how we can't seem to tear ourselves away from our screens. By now, we've all heard about how our relationships with our phones can be described as well, for lack of a better word, codependent. I'm lying in my bed. I can reach over to my nightstand. I'm awake. It's on the desk next to me. It's in my pocket. Pocket, pocket, pocket. Because it's functionally there all the time, it may as well be a part of our bodies. Adam has spent most of the last decade tracking how we're spending more and more time on our screens. Now, before the introduction of the of the iPhone, it was a couple of hours, and that was usually just in front of a TV. We only spent about 18 minutes looking at our phones. Once that device was introduced a few years later, 10, 10 years later, actually in 2017, we were spending about three or four hours a day looking at those screens sometimes for kids five or six hours a day. Personal time, exercising, hobbies, conversations with friends and loved ones used to be a couple of hours a day. It was now about half an hour or even slightly less than half an hour a day. And that had changed in just a decade. 
And Adam says it's not like all those hours are spent learning a new language or meditating. Big surprise, most of that time is spent on games and social media. We spend three times more on average on those apps that I think are a little bit hollow and not not especially good for well-being. Adam Alter picks up the story from the TED stage. Now, what's interesting about these apps, dating, social networking, gaming, entertainment, news, web browsing, about half the people, when you interrupt them and say, how do you feel, say they don't feel good about using them. We're spending three times longer on the apps that don't make us happy. That doesn't seem very wise. Now, one of the reasons we spend so much time on these apps that make us unhappy is they rob us of stopping cues. Stopping cues were everywhere in the 20th century. They were baked into everything we did. Think about newspapers. Eventually, you get to the end, you fold the newspaper away, you you put it aside. The same with magazines. But the way we consume media today is such that there are no stopping cues. The newsfeed just rolls on, and everything's bottomless. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, email text messaging, the news, and when you do check all sorts of other sources, you can just keep going on and on and on, on and on and on, on and on and on, on and on and on. Okay, but it's not exactly that simple. There are plenty of voices in Silicon Valley who would say, hey, you have free will, be disciplined. In practice today, absolutely, that's true. But it's also really that it's not a fair fight, because to be completely frank with you, I don't think they're great products. I just think they are hard to stop using. (laughs) The people who are putting together these platforms, either they are very sophisticated psychologists or they hire very sophisticated psychologists or they don't even need psychologists because they have access to so many data points that all they need to do is try 10 different things, throw them all at the wall, see which one sticks the best with the audience. And we as consumers have no no insight into that. We don't know that that's going on. And because it's ha- happening constantly, all of these platforms are evolving to be kind of weaponized to engage us. And we just don't have the resources to combat that as individuals. So when you think about screen time, maybe this is a fantasy, but let's think of Goldilocks, right? She's got the one plate that's too much, the other plate that's too little, but then the one that's just right. Is there a just right when it comes to our smartphones, to our time on these digital platforms? Yeah. So the first thing I tell people is try to spend the same period every day. Maybe make it dinner time to begin because that's easy. We have dinner every day. Make it dinner time and maybe the half hour before and after and say, for that period of time every day, I'm going to take my phone and put it in a drawer in a room that's far away or in my bag and put my bag far away so that it's not within physical reach during dinner time. And you're thoughtful about not spending a huge amount of time just just scrolling through app after app after app, but actually doing something that's engaging, that's enriching, that's good for you, that brings you closer to other people in a meaningful way. I think that's the Goldilocks moment, is when you you hit the right number, but you're also doing the right things with that time. And what's interesting is people first struggle with that. They find it difficult. They have FOMO. They feel that they're missing out on whatever else they might be doing on their phones. But very quickly, they start to tolerate that experience to being far away from their phones. And often, whether they're alone, whether they're with friends, with family members, no matter what it is, they find that that period of the day as a sort of oasis. Mm. It's, a, it's time away. And, and they find it very enriching. So I'm going to make an admission here, which is that there have been moments, my kids are older now, but there were moments when somebody was having a tantrum, not me, uh, and I (laughs) have indeed handed over my phone to subdue a child. I don't feel proud about it. But you know, at the end of the day, you just have to get through certain situations. Absolutely agree. So I guess I'm just wondering... Do we just have to accept that this is a reality, that screens are with us in our lives? And as long as maybe we think carefully, do I need to look at this right now versus like, I'm just going to do it because I'm kind of feeling lazy? Or is that the question that we have to ask ourselves? I, I think the right question is, what's the alternative here? What are we missing out on if we're using screens? I think that's a good question because in the moment, using screens for half an hour on a particular day. It's not going to change the way your brain functions. It's not going to destroy your mm. you know, your attention span, things like that. So it's 2 p.m. on a random Saturday afternoon. Your kids could be playing outside because it's a beautiful day. I think that's a better alternative than using a screen in that moment. In the checkout line on a plane, there aren't many better alternatives. I think it's probably, in general, 
if those are exceptions, okay to, to use your screen in those moments. And I think we should give ourselves a bit of a break because after all, we are human. So what's the take home here? You know, screens are miraculous. I've already said that and I feel that it's true. But the way we use them is, is a lot like driving down a really fast, long road. And you're in a car where the accelerator is mashed to the floor. It's kind of hard to reach the brake pedal. And you've, you've got a choice. You can either glide by past, say, the beautiful ocean scenes and take snaps out the window, and that's the easy thing to do. Or you can go out of your way to move the car to the side of the road to push that brake pedal, to get out. Take off your shoes and socks. Take a couple of steps onto the sand. Feel what the sand feels like under your feet. Walk to the ocean and let the ocean lap at your ankles. Your life will be richer and more meaningful because you breathe in that experience and because you've left your phone in the car. Thank you. Adam Alter is a professor of marketing and psychology at NYU's Stern School of Business. You can find his full talk at TED.com. Thanks so much for listening to our show this week. I hope you think about it the next time you go online. And if you'd like to find out more about who was on the episode, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Rachel Faulkner, Diva Motasham, James Delahousi, J.C. Howard, Katie Monteleone, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Christina Kala, Kiera Brown, and Hannah Bolaños, with help from Brent Bachman and Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Matthew Cloutier, and our theme music was written by Ramtin Arablui. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR.